Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high-energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues. Sports, entertainment, politics, nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. As, of course, as always, we have Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery, and Rich Lenkov of Downey & Lenkov. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand, and we start with parents of a school shooter possibly being pitted against each other as both of them are heading to trial. With that, our first guest is Professor Jeffrey Schwartz of Cooley Law School. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, in November 2021, 15-year-old Ethan Crumley opened fire with a semi-automatic handgun at his suburban Detroit high school, leaving four students dead and several others injured. Ethan's parents helped him purchase the gun as an early Christmas present. He pleaded guilty to two dozen counts, including for murder and terrorism, and at the sentencing hearing, he received a life sentence without parole, which we understand is going to be appealed. Tell us more about Ethan's case. Yeah, in Ethan's instance, uh, he is a minor. Uh, the Miller versus Alabama case basically says that juveniles should not be sentenced to life without parole and then went on to say you can do it as long as you have a specific hearing. The idea is that we try to judge whether someone who is underage is redeemable. That is, whether their thought processes are such that they can be corrected over a period of time. Uh, under Miller versus Alabama, it's pretty clear that there are certain criteria that are supposed to be followed in making that decision. And, and there was that long hearing uh, that took place and the judge made a finding against Ethan, you know, dealing with factors such as abuse or neglect of the child, what kind of experience the child has had, how far they've gone in school and mental health diagnosis, those type of things that we generally look at even with adults to determine the appropriate sentence. In this particular case, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. Um, the judges have been very hard on all of the parties except for the prosecutor in this case. And it was kind of a foregone conclusion that this judge was going to find that Ethan was irredeemable and was deserving of, in fact, and made a very long finding, a very long order um, to find that he should be sentenced to life without parole. That is what the appeal is. It's all over the sentencing and whether he got a fair hearing, uh, there were some issues that were presented, or whether, in fact, the finding of the court was accurate. And that's really what it's all about. It is the reason why he's refusing to testify right now, or his lawyers are telling him not to in the trial of his mother and father. Yeah, Professor, in that trial um, of the shooter's parents uh, that's going on right now, you know, if successful, of course, this will establish a precedent that many prosecutors have, you know, contemplated or even tried, but have not yet been successful, that being holding parents of a shooter responsible. Um, briefly, what is the challenge to overcome in convincing a jury that parents should be responsible? And in particular, in this case, where there is some indicia that, you know, that the parents were um, at least aware of some of this potential, uh, you know, how's that going to look for future cases, in your opinion? Well, the first thing is that, that 
Michigan solved the hole that's in this case. And that is that involuntary manslaughter requires something more than mere negligence. The instruction that the jury is going to get is that they had to take, there was mere negligence here and that there was a mere uh, action by them that was necessary to avoid all of this. And if they had taken that action, such as not buying his son a gun, then under those or locking the gun, then therefore he should, they should be held liable. That's not what involuntary manslaughter is in this particular case. They're going to have to show that there was a legal duty. And there was in Michigan at the time no legal duty to lock up your guns. In fact, the NRA had fought such a law the last time that it was presented to the legislature. They have to show that that particular um, legal duty was violated and that that violation is not reasonable and that society should not sanction that. And lastly, they have to prove that that violation has a cause, causational contact or and or uh, component to the deaths that took place. And that's where the hole was in the case. The legislature solved that hole for future cases. The real problem here is the effect of a verdict on the common law and the effect of an appellate court uh, affirming that decision. So the question now comes in, any verdict will have to be considered to go beyond just a firearm. What if you have a baseball bat in your house and your nine-year-old or your 10-year-old or your 12-year-old gets mad at the kid down the block, comes and gets his baseball bat out of your garage and goes and beats up some kid and causes great serious harm and or death? Are we now going to say you should have uh, secured your baseball bats? Do you have to secure your kitchen knives? Do you have to secure your pruning shears? I mean, how far down the line of what kind of weapon uh, is going to be permissible? And I think that's the big problem here. The precedent that's being set is very dangerous, that we could find parents responsible for all kinds of acts by claiming that by mere negligence of not securing an item, they now are liable for the acts of their children. I, I have serious issues with this. Uh, we have an adage in the law that one cannot be held responsible for the acts of another. And that's the problem we're running into now. Again, that's Professor Jeffrey Schwartz of Cooley Law School. Professor, thank you very much for the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. 
In addition to hosting WGN's legal face-off since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast, the Supreme Court will review Richard Glossop's case a second time. With that, we bring in Donald Knight of Don Knight Law. He brings more than 30 years of experience in all phases of law with a concentration on criminal defense. You can find out more information at dknight, that's knight with a K, law.com. Don, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you all for having me. So, Don, earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to take up the case of your client, Richard Glossop, who is a death row prisoner in Oklahoma, who was convicted of conspiring to kill his boss at the motel where he worked back in 1997. Glossop has maintained his innocence through nine scheduled executions. Can you tell us more about this case? Sure. In uh, 1996, a 19-year-old drug addict and, and a guy with a criminal background, a Justin Sneed, took a job with a roofing company in Texas and, and then moved north to do some roofing in Oklahoma, ended up staying at a place called the Best Budget Inn. Uh, there, um, he took his, his drug use to a new level um, with methamphetamine, liked the prostitutes that were there. Uh, and as is normally the case in those kinds of situations, uh, he needed money. And uh, the owner of the motel uh, was a guy named Barry Van Treese. The manager of the motel was my client, Richard Glossop. Uh, um, in January of 1997, Sneed and a girlfriend of his hatched a plot to rob Van Treese. Everybody knew Van Treese always carried a lot of cash. And so um, they went ahead and hatched their plot and, and attempted to pull it off in the middle of the night on January 6th and January 7th, 1997. And uh, it went bad. They beat Barry Van beat Barry Bantries to death with a baseball bat. Rich Glossop had nothing at all to do with it. Sneed fled the next day. The cops, however, were not satisfied that Glossop may not have anything to do with it. And they began questioning him very heavily when they finally caught Sneed a week later. Sneed um, was uh, first lying to them about his involvement. And then they went ahead and they told him, uh, what they what he needed to say, which was Glossop um, paid him to do this. And he went ahead and went along with that. And in exchange for this testimony of his, he was uh, given a chance at life without parole rather than to face the death penalty. He has been lying in court ever since. How'd you get involved? I mean, what fast forward to, you know, your client, as Tina mentioned, has now been um through nine scheduled executions. How did you get involved in the case and what's the current status of it? You know, Rich Glossop um, was uh, convicted in 98. It was overturned on appeal. He was convicted again in 2004. Very bad lawyering, very bad police work on this case all the way around. Prosecutorial misconduct. Um, in 20, late 2014, he was uh, uh, given a date and, and that was his first date. And then he had a clemency hearing and he lost that clemency hearing five to nothing. Uh, Sister Helen Prejean is a friend of mine, the author of Dead Man Walking. And she called me after that final um, clemency hearing and said, Don, I think this guy's innocent. Uh, we need to help him. And uh, that began uh, my odyssey in this case. Um, the case, uh, he was uh, given two more dates in 20. 
I'm sorry, maybe three more dates in 2015. Um, and he um, uh, was scheduled to be executed on the final one on September 30th. We had put in a petition. The court, the petition had been denied. We found some innocence evidence. The petition was denied. And he was scheduled to be executed on September 30th of 1997, but they brought the wrong drug. Turned out that they had used that wrong drug in the previous execution in Oklahoma and didn't tell anybody about it. A grand jury investigation began and a moratorium began that lasted until 2022 when we began to get more dates. And we've we've been struggling against all of those dates ever since. We had a final date in uh, May of, of last year that the Supreme Court um uh, gave us a stay of execution because the um, attorney general gave us access to a box of evidence that had never been seen by the defense before. And in that box of evidence, we found evidence that the prosecutors knew that Sneed had a mental health issue uh, and uh, lied about it, didn't and didn't disclose that evidence, uh, allowed the, the uh, Sneed to lie about it on the witness stand and the attorney general said he could no longer support the conviction and agreed that we should have a new trial. Despite the fact that the attorney general of Oklahoma agreed we should have a new trial, um, the Court of Criminal Appeals disagreed and said kill him anyway. So we appealed to the Supreme Court and just this week they granted cert. It's pretty unique, isn't it, Don, for the Supreme Court to rule on death penalty cases? It's not unheard of, um, but it, it is usually rather unique. You've mentioned some of the um, issues leading up to now, which were evidentiary in nature, et cetera. But are there any other factors at play here um, that made the Supreme Court, you know, essentially, you know, granting cert, they're going to hear it. So what is it about this case that warrants special attention, perhaps, whereas other death penalty cases don't necessarily warrant the attention? Well, as far as I know, I don't think there's ever been a case where an attorney general in a state has said that the state made a mistake, that there were problems in the prosecution of a case, uh, errors by the state, and that they, therefore there was not a fair trial. Those, that's what he said uh, in, in his pleadings. And uh, he could no longer support this conviction. And while local district attorneys have at times changed their focus uh, and, and change their minds uh, to have a, an attorney general of a state actually say that um, at, at the 11th hour is, is pretty darn rare. So I think that's the kind of thing that has given the court uh, an idea that something is wrong here. Um, there's also, um, I think, you know, the persistent aspects of, of innocence in this claim. In, in this case, we've had two different independent investigations done, one by the legislators and one uh, by um, by the attorney general himself that have both reached the conclusion that there are serious problems and that Rich Glossop may well be innocent. And I think that's also weighing on the court's mind. Don, uh, last couple questions. While we have you here on Legal Faceoff, there have been pauses in death penalty cases in many states. There's been ca calls to abolish it here in Illinois, where we're sitting. It's been repealed for, for quite some time. In Oklahoma, where this case uh, sits, there's been calls from two uh, Republican lawmakers to reexamine all 36 death row cases. Number one. And number two, we all are very aware, of course, of the execution yesterday in Alabama uh, of Kenneth Smith, where this new form of punishment was used. 
um, that many have called have called you know uh, cruel and unusual. This is uh, nitrogen hypoxia. How do those two factors play into your case? Oklahoma has um, uh, the, 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 these two lawmakers, and there have been other lawmakers that have joined. These are our right wing. Uh, conservative Republican death penalty supporting lawmakers. And uh, they always believed in the system before this case came along. But once I met them and we began to discuss this case and show the problems in this case, they began to recognize that there are problems with their judicial system. And the deeper they dug, the more these problems came out. So they have changed their mind, not on the death penalty, but I think on the system that it that, that it exists in, and they want it to be changed. As far as what happened um, last night in in Alabama, uh, that's you know, um, I, I think that those those lawmakers would probably say, uh, you know, how can we be sure with the system that's in place that we are actually killing people uh, who deserve to be killed? And until the until reforms are made. We can't be sure of that. Again, that's Donald Knight of Don Knight Law. Find out more at dknight, that's Knight with a K, law.com. Don, thank you very much for the insight. Thanks so much, you guys. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff here on WGN Radio. In the spirit of consolidating just about everything these days, Jordan Rothman believes that emails should be constructed the same way. We have Jordan Rothman of Rothman Law Firm right here with us. Jordan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Jordan, I was so happy to see your excellent article in Above the Law because this is something that's near and dear to my heart. Any attorney that I've worked with for almost 30 years will tell you that my biggest pet peeve is verbosity, is (laughs) legalese, is long emails is lawyers trying to sound like what they think lawyers should be. And we can't blame only the lawyers because coming out of law school, they're trained a different way. I just came off teaching a law school class and the kids were great, but they think they have to sound like a lawyer. So please tell me from your experience, why is less more when it comes to legal writing? Well, first of all, thank you all. Thank you all so much for having me on the show and for reading my article. Um, I believe less is more for a variety of reasons, probably principally when you write less, you really focus in on the arguments that you do uh, present. Um, When you write a lot, um, it's easy for some of your stronger arguments to get lost in the mix. I remember one time I uh, was on the I, I filed a summary judgment motion. And uh, the person who opposed the motion filed a half a page opposition, making one argument uh, inciting to one rule. And um, the judge ended up denying my summary judgment motion, which was very copious and comprehensive based on that, probably because the court was just extremely drawn to the argument that was being made. So sometimes less is more because it can really amplify the arguments that you do make in a beneficial way. So, Jordan, why do lawyers like to write so verbosely? Um, You know, Rich touched at the beginning of our session about how law students, for example, feel like they sound more official um, by writing so much. But, you know, there are tons of practicing lawyers out there who can't really use that as an excuse. So why do you think lawyers tend to write so verbosely? 
Well, I don't think it's any secret uh, to say that some lawyers uh, like the sound of their own voice. And when it comes to written communications, I guess they like the sound of uh, their own keyboards, um, if that is an expression. Um, So I think part of it is just that some people believe that, you know, they can get a better um, position across if they do provide wordier responses or written communications. Um, And then also, I mean, some of it is just, you know, when you're dealing with clients, sometimes you want to show the clients that you really were advocating on their behalf. And um, so some lawyers might believe that they have to go above and beyond written communications and other papers that they file uh, in order to prove that they're doing a really thorough job. Um, but that's not the case. Um, you know, I think if you're more a little bit more casual with adversaries and other stakeholders, you might actually be able to connect with people better. And if you're a little bit more brief, you might be able to get a better point across. Right. I want to get to that casual point in a moment. But as you were talking, I just wrote down three of my top 10 pet peeves, word, pet peeve words that I see in legal writing that literally I cross off every time. Are you ready? I'm sure you've got some. Tina, you could chime in if you've got some. Sure. All right, number one, at this particular time, comment, <laughs> as, if, as if the reader would think you're talking about some other time, right? <laughs> Isn't the default that you're talking about now, right? So, I mean, that's just, that's extra verbiage that should not be in any legal writing. Number two, I wrote down, this is everyone's favorite, please be advised, comma, blank. Everything you're saying is <laughs> It's like saying, hey, please be advised, I would like you to pass me the salt. Or you could just say, pass me the salt. So everything you're saying as a lawyer is inherently advisory. So don't say that please be advised. It's nonsense. Number three, and here's my another one of my favorites. This is actually, you know, attaching to a brief when you refer to an exhibit. Exhibit, uh, ex- please see exhibit A, attached hereto and made a part here hereof. What the F does that even mean? Is there any judge in the world that if you just said... Open print, exhibit A, close print. They wouldn't know that it's made a part here to and made a part hereof. Don't ever use the words here to and hereof ever again unless you're wearing a powdered wig and you're in like Victorian <laughs> France. That's my advice to some legal writing. That all be- So here's, go ahead, Rich. I was going to say, I, I've got to pile on to this great oh list God, with, um, you know, the whole notion of closing a letter by saying, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact the undersigned. What? It's like, why can't you just speak in English to Rich's point? And sort of related to one of the points that Rich made, the whole attached please find drives me nuts. Why can't you say, you know, either nothing at all, because it's abundantly obvious that you've got something attached, or just say we attach or we enclose, like actually have a subject and a verb. That's, you know, those are my two cents for the time being, so... If I had hair, I would pull my hair out every time I see stuff like that. And I see it every single day. But we digress. To your earlier point of, you know, sometimes the casual talk is the way to go. What, however, is the effect of texting and emojis and Snapchat and social media? How has that also affected legal writing, in your opinion? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's had a multifarious impact. Um, One is that I think... um, legal writing is becoming viewable to a lot more people. Um, Just because sometimes legal writing can go viral, um, it could be spread on social media. So I think people are playing to bigger audiences. Um, Now, that's not to say that 
you know, there hasn't been judges in the past who haven't tried to be funny. You know, there's a famous case in New York involving a haunted house. I don't know if you studied it in law school where the judges made a bunch of Ghostbusters references and whatnot. But I feel like because of social media and because there are so many eyeballs that are going to be seen on things, there's there's some sort of effort to try to be funnier or try to be more casual or to try to change their writings in such a way that it can um, elicit a response to the masses. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's probably the biggest impact. So, Jordan, let's talk a little bit about communications between attorneys, particularly adversaries. Um, obviously, it's an art. Um, for those of us who've been practicing law for a while, no two cases are the same. And so, you know, our learning, if you will, and our training is all sort of a byproduct of accumulating numerous experiences and then drawing from all those experiences to the case that we're working on now. One of the things that you've talked about is that may cause a problem actually between attorneys is dense emails. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, sometimes if you have dense communications between lawyers, it can be very easy for you know, law lawyer communications to be two ships, you know, missing each other in the night because uh, uh, someone's trying to make a point. It's very dense. They're, they're just trying to get their argument out. And the other person doesn't have a lot of time on their hands and they're skimming the email. They're trying to get the best points, um, but they can't really understand what's happening. So sometimes if you have really voluminous communications, um, you might not get the point across. And um, it's a lot more difficult to have a casual communication between lawyers if it's so dense. And and part of a lot of um, legal areas is that you have to have a really good uh, connection with other stakeholders to a deal, whether it's litigation and you need a courtesy or if it's a transaction and you need to negotiate deal terms. And, you know, a lot of these communications are happening through email, written communications. People don't pick up the phone as much. So sometimes the connection that you're forging with your adversary is only or, or the majority um, with written communications. So if you can have more casual language and be more brief, it's a lot easier to form a connection that can be very beneficial when serving clients. Yeah, it's interesting, Jordan, because I um, remember a book written by Antonin Scalia, who, you know, you might disagree with his rulings, with his politics, but he wrote a book um, about effective legal writing. And his point was the same that we're making now. The most effective legal writing is the simplest. And this was from, you know, again, right or wrong, left or right, one of the uh, most brilliant jurists who's been around the last hundred years. So if it was good enough for Scalia, you would think that that policy would be good enough for anyone. Last question here on Legal Faceup. Well, uh, maybe you could leave our listeners, and particularly we have lots of law students who listen regularly and watch regularly. What's one takeaway that you would advise young writers on how to uh, handle their communications more effectively? Yeah, I would just say um, bottom line up front is always a very good policy. So, you know, just come out and say the main point that you're trying to say right at the beginning when everyone has um, the most attention, bottom line up front. Um, and then I would just say, you know, try not to be so dense. I have a rule and this I wouldn't necessarily advise this for other people. I never have more than 10 sentences in an email <laughs> because I try to make it so that I am forced to make my point in a limited amount of space so that I don't get into a situation where my emails are too dense and people might miss things. Um, you should try to find what type of an arrangement works for you so that you can be um, as quick as possible um, while also effectively getting your point across um, so that you can 
you know, not bog the reader down and potentially have the reader miss things that you're trying to convey. Jordan, at this particular time, we would like to thank you for your help and insight on this topic. Please be advised that we'd love to have you another time in the future. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I publish twice a week. So if any other articles uh, catch your interest, I'd love to be back on. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, it's time for the Legal Grab Bag. We have two great guests. We welcome in Mark McKay, a seasoned wealth management executive and current manager of BMO's U.S. Trust and Estate Division. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Along with Jeremy Evans, CEO and founder of California Sports Lawyer and host of the California Sports Lawyer podcast. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Rich, I know I've been gone for a while, but uh, the Trump news has not gone away. So let's just get into the latest of that. Trump machine never stops. Yesterday, uh, in the middle of his campaign, which we know now he's going to win overwhelmingly the Republican nomination for presidents, uh, he stopped by the now familiar courthouse in uh, Manhattan to discuss uh, his side of the E.G. Carroll defamation trial, where we know already he's been found guilty of defamation. The question is the damages that he will owe. And uh, the judge admonished him several times before yesterday, Tina, to basically keep his mouth shut, to only testify regarding the issues, to not continue to criticize and, in fact, defame E.G. Carroll, which he has now on several occasions, including the day after the murder came in the last time, you know, only Trump could be charged and found responsible for defamation. And then the same day defame her again. We all know that defamation can happen with a single utterance. You only need one, you know, act to, uh, to, uh, to prove defamation. Well, Trump came in yesterday and testified only for about three minutes. Um, but in that three minutes, he managed to, you know, insult her again, um, proclaim his innocence, proclaim that, Tina, he was not only defending himself, but the presidency, as if the founders of our country meant for that esteemed office to be a vehicle for calling out people's looks and appearances and claim that they never knew them, even though there's this now famous interview where he mistakes E. Jean Carroll for his wife at the time. So um, the shenanigans continue, um, and Trump is not doing himself any favors. But the real Key to all this, Tina, is again, I'm not a Trump fan, but I do have to give him credit as a campaigner because what he's doing is sacrificing his legal case in favor of his political case. Because every time he testifies, every time he holds a press conference, 
that message is getting sent to all of his supporters. And it continues to write the script that Trump is a victim, that he is the victim of prosecutorial aggression. And he's just doing this with the eye towards the election. So in that respect, he's being pretty effective, unfortunately, in my opinion. Well, I agree. And as you said at the outset, Rich, the fact of the matter is that he's going to be the Republican candidate. And, you know, there's been quite a bit that's happened on that front with respect to DeSantis, for example, et cetera, since our last show. So the landscape to sh- the landscape has shifted a bit since our last show. And you're absolutely right. And it's this constant sort of balance between his legal cases and his political aspirations. And Mark, I mean, do you think any of this has really any effect on on Trump, on his uh, on his base, uh, even if and he will be again? I mean, this time the goal of the prosecutors is or the plaintiffs, I should say, is to hit him with enough of a monetary hit so that he thinks twice. We know that won't happen. But do you think any of that will have any effect, really? Absolutely not. You know, Rich, I uh, I grew up in, in Iowa and I have a number of friends and family members who went to the caucuses pulled the lever, uh, or in Iowa speak, you know, went into the right corner of the gym, raised their hand, said, I'm a Trump uh, delegate. The, you you nailed it. This is only making him more popular with his base. Whatever he's having to pay in a fine is the cheapest advertising dollars he could possibly get in the universe. The folks who are bringing these suits must really want him to become the next president of the United States because they're only doing damage to the Biden campaign. From Donald Trump to Donald Trump impersonators, Alec Baldwin is again charged with manslaughter, Tina. Yeah, Joe. So as our listeners know, we've been covering this story a ton over the past couple of years. And last week, Alec Baldwin was charged again with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of the film, which reinstates the criminal case against him months after the previous charges were dropped. An independent forensic test concluded that Baldwin would have had to pull the trigger of the Colt 45 he was using during the rehearsal for it to have fired the live round that ended up killing Hutchins and wounding the movie's director, Joel Sousa. Prosecutors had previously dismissed these charges based on evidence that the hammer of the revolver might have been modified, which would have allowed it to fire without the trigger being pulled. As our listeners know, Baldwin has denied since the beginning pulling the trigger. And according to the police report, David Halls, who's the assistant director who handed the gun to Baldwin, told the actor that the weapon was cold. And David Halls said that he was unaware that the gun was loaded. The indictment charges Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter under two different legal theories, causing a death by negligent use of a firearm and by acting without due caution or circumspection. And it's a fourth degree felony that's punishable by up to 18 months in prison. As we know, the movie's chief armorer, Hannah Gutierrez, who handled the gun before Halls, has also been charged with involuntary manslaughter in a case that's set for trial later this year. Halls himself signed a plea agreement for the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon And Baldwin and other Rust producers reached a settlement last October in the wrongful death claims brought by Hutchins' family. And our our good friend and frequent guest, Gloria Allred, is currently representing Hutchins' parents. So the saga continues, Rich. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see if the prosecutors, frankly, could get out of their own way. They screwed up the charges the first time. I think the key in that regard, Tina and Jeremy, is, you know, whether they could just simplify this issue for the jury, because it's a little complicated. Are they charging Alec Baldwin individually? Are they charging him as a producer who negligently uh, allowed this hot gun to be on the set? I think none of that matters. I think you have to go after Alec Baldwin as a person and just allege and prove that he was negligent in handling this weapon. I think the, the more you keep it simple, the more persuasive that'll be. And you don't overreach. I don't think it's likely that Alec Baldwin, even if found guilty, will see any jail time of any note. You know, you'd have to prove that uh, he had some kind of mens rea, some kind of intent to pull that trigger. And I, I don't think that's the case. So I think he'll, you know, probably get off uh, fairly lightly. But Jeremy, in your wheelhouse, you know, what do you think the effect of, of of this prominent actor, what do you think of the effect of his celebrityhood will have on this jury? Will it be a, a positive or a negative? Well, you know, I think for the most part, juries are receptive to celebrities, um, uh, particularly ones who uh, have had a career like Alec. I mean, he's he's been successful, but he's also um, he's had some some run ins with the press over the years. And so. He's kind of in in some some ways maybe the guy that you love to hate, but he's been in so many different films. I mean, I, again, I think the juries are you know uh, going to be pretty receptive to that. Uh, that being said, I think that um, it, it's sort of an interesting prospect because I think it's going to change the way Hollywood does films, and I, and I think um, it'll be curious as to whether the jury uh, and or uh, whoever's involved sort of uses him as a as a as an example. Um, I don't know if it's going to go that far, but it's it's going to be very interesting to follow. Moving on, Rich, quite a bizarre story with this death in Kansas City among Chiefs, Chiefs fans. Yeah, three Chiefs fans died after watching the game on uh, January 7th, and they weren't discovered till many hours later outside the host home. The story continues to unravel. I mean, I've seen breaking news on this. And one thing that uh, as we await the uh, toxicology reports, which you know, obviously will be instructive to see if these guys were drunk, if they were on drugs, um, that will, uh, I think, have a large role to play in who was responsible. Um, but even if they were drunk or on drugs, right, there's some liability for the host, right? I mean, we all know that you can't just have a party and allow people to wander off, especially in the frigid temperatures of a Kansas City night, and not have any responsibility. There's been some uh, allegations that um, their cars were still in his driveway. Uh, you know, how could you not see that they had not departed if their cars were in his driveway? We just learned that the individual who owned the home, who is the subject of many, you know, much speculation, especially by the victim's families, he slept for 48 hours after the game. I mean, how, just get your head around that for a second. What does that even mean? How do you sleep for 48 hours? What kind of party was this? I mean, I get it. The Chiefs won on that, you know, wide right field goal, that walkout field goal, and Taylor Swift was there, and it was the most watched playoff game in history, and Kelsey caught two touchdowns. But for Christ's sake, 48 hours, how do you sleep that long? So obviously, you know, that leads to some questions. Um, uh, and, you know, I don't know how three individual, I mean, I don't know how one person dies outside in the frigid temperatures. There's not some foul play, let alone three. So lots of questions to be answered. Um, I think we haven't seen the rest of this. And again, the toxicology report will, uh, will show a lot, uh, in terms of what happened here. Yeah, Rich. I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions, as you said, like, I mean, just like head scratching things. Like, I mean, these guys apparently, from what I read, they passed away, like on this guy's porch. 
And yet he claims that he was home for days. And, you know, now it's this 48 hours I was asleep thing. But I don't understand for the few hours that he may have been awake, um, you know, just taking at face value that he claims to have been asleep for 48 hours. How do you not know that there are three deceased people on your porch? I, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. The sleeping 48 hours, just to me, without seeing the toxicology results, seems to indicate that these guys must have been doing something that would make your body sleep for days on end or, or possibly die. I mean, maybe they were hanging out outside because they were not fit to drive and then they ended up passing away um, because of the cold. So, um, you know, surely this is a story, Rich, that is developing. Yeah, and and Mark, I, mean, I know you're you're uh, interested in the story for a couple of reasons, but uh, uh, allegedly, according to his own attorney, Willis, the homeowner, has already moved out. He deactivated his social media. He's gone off work again. Those are uh, if you follow conspiracies and these mysteries that are on all the time. Those are indicia, maybe of someone who is is guilty. But but we'll see. What do you think happened here, Mark? You know, I, I'm going to go the other way. I mean, this is the most Kansas City watch party of all time. You know, I lived there for 15 years before moving to Chicago. I find nothing about this suspicious <laughs> at all. Uh, I got to tell you, I watched that game. I'm a rabid fan with uh, with my family at home. And uh, I went to sleep for 24 hours after the game. And, uh, you know, I had work the next day. This is This is how we roll in Kansas City. I think this is totally above board. And I think the homeowner is going to be vindicated here very shortly, Rich. Actually, I stand corrected. It wasn't the last game. It was the game before that that set that, of course, Taylor was still at, but Kelsey did not score two touchdowns. But nonetheless, it was, uh, yeah, that was the, that record cold game uh, at home. Uh, of course, this last game was was on the road to Buffalo. But, um, Jeremy, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, is this just an accident where, you know, no one is responsible? Or do you think there's some foul play involved too? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the weather, right? Because I'd be curious how cold it was. Because I would imagine in the Midwest, you know, for how, and even in the East, how cold it gets, you might not go outside for a long period of time. Uh, and especially if it's, you know, a Saturday night, uh, you know, and you're sleeping in, um, you know, wait until the next day. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me too much. Uh, you know, generally when that's cold, you're probably going to stay inside unless you got a reason to go outside. But uh, without more facts, I would kind of lean on that um, that this was just a, a coincidence. Let's continue and don't stop to you again enough, Tina. A Michael Jackson tribute act is suing the king of Pop's estate. Yeah, Joe. So last week in what we IP lawyers call our classic case of turnabout, um, after receiving a cease and desist letter from Michael Jackson's estate, a Michael Jackson tribute band called MJL-12 has sued the co-executors of Michael Jackson's estate in Nevada asking for an order declaring that their Las Vegas show and their brand don't infringe the estate's trademarks. The plaintiff here has a tribute show called MJ Live, and the cease and desist letter coming from the estate demanded that they cancel their upcoming shows even though they've already performed over 3,600 of these shows throughout the United States since 2012 and have actually had shows outside of the U.S., including in Mexico, Guatemala, and Tahiti, all under this MJ Live branding. As these types of declaratory judgment actions usually go in trademark and IP matters, 
The Tribute Band is seeking a finding of non-infringement under the Federal Trademark Act and right of publicity. And they're also claiming common law trademark infringement, unfair competition, and an order canceling the registration of a trademark logo that's being used to promote a rival production called MJ the Musical, which the estate produces. The plaintiffs claim they have millions of dollars invested in this 10-plus-year-old production and that the estate's claims of infringement and attempts to cancel their trademark registration and the demands to cancel the upcoming shows demonstrate that they're just trying to harm them by interfering with existing contracts. As the direct, And they're also alleging that it's a direct and proximate result of their acts that is causing them to suffer not just actual harm, but also irreparable harm, and that it will only be partially compensated by an award for attorney damages, which is you know, typical in these kinds of cases, Rich, but this is an interesting one. Um, I always find declaratory judgment actions, particularly in IP, really interesting. Um, you have to be pretty, I would say, pretty confident to, to do that, at least in the cases I've seen over the years where folks are filing DJ actions in the in the branding space. Well, you know, it's, I always find it interesting that, you know, in these cases when the defendants allege that you know, uh, they have been using this for so long and they should continue to be allowed to use it. Well, allegedly they have been using it so long fraudulently, right? Because they misrepresented several things in the application. So it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the argument, well, you know, I broke into your house, you didn't stop me then, then why should I be kicked out after staying so long? Well, you know, if it's true that they misappropriated the, you know, uh, if, if they, if they, if they got the rights in the first place wrongfully, fraudulently, as is alleged, they should not be allowed to continue to keep it. And well, it'll be interesting, Rich, because I've been seeing a lot more instances of people alleging fraud on the trademark office. That so whether or not it was actually fraudulent, I think remains to be seen. I agree with you that if it is in fact true um, that they that they got the registration by fraud, that will be a data point. Um, but it's not going to be determinative because. The fact is that these guys have done thousands of shows, and one of the things that I think is going to be important here is figuring out whether the estate knew about these guys, because there may be latches here that will come into play. Yeah. Uh, Mark, what's also interesting is just the amount of money that is out there available in the world for a dead person's IP, right? I mean, in many ways, you know, Michael Jackson's brand continues to be perhaps even more lucrative with the available technology that there is today. Than when he was alive, right? I mean, you see that with Elvis, you see that with ABBA. I was in London, and they've got a huge production of of, of ABBA hologram show. I mean, these people, these estates, in some cases, the actual individuals are still making millions and millions of dollars off this IP. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's a great point. You know, you've actually stumbled into something that I actually know a little about, right? And uh, you know, as, as someone who leads uh, BMO's trust and estate department. You know, the executors have a fiduciary obligation to go get this money. Like they have a responsibility to go after these guys. I mean, nobody likes a bully, but, um, you know, they, they absolutely have to bring this claim. I think it's a novel punchback theory uh, by them, but I think it's a lot of posturing and negotiations. Uh, I think we would all be stunned if this just doesn't end in a confidential settlement with some very real dollars being paid over to 
the estate and, you know, uh, it'll be fun to watch, but uh, I have a lot of sympathy for the executors here. Yeah, for sure. By the way, breaking news, the jury says Trump must pay $83.3 million to E.G. and Carroll. They just came back now. Uh, Jeremy, back to Michael Jackson. Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on this case? Yeah, you know, similar thoughts as to what's been shared already that I think, you know, I definitely sympathize with the estate. This is something that estates probably deal with, uh, especially somebody as popular as Michael Jackson. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, if sort of it ever came to a jury, the jury would probably, you know, uh, be more inclined to go with the Jackson estate, uh, particularly with for the love of, of 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 who he is and or sort of who he was. Um, but I think it's also interesting, too, in this sort of age of like artificial intelligence and um, sort of deep fakes and this sort of thing. This obviously isn't on that, you know, that high of level, but. Uh, it's sort of just to me. It's uh, it's just interesting in 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 that context when you're thinking about it. From the king of pop to the queen of just about everything. Police are making sure it's not a cruel winter for Taylor Swift as they've arrested a stalker of hers over the weekend. Rich, look what you made me do, Joe. I can't believe it. Um, yeah, Taylor Swift is uh, the victim allegedly of this stalker. I mean, uh, this guy has been arrested several times outside her property. Um, in New York, um, and he continues to, you know, creep her out, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he you know, he went literally from jail the other day right back to her uh, standing outside her apartment. Um, you know, these are, and then he was arrested right, you know, uh, uh, right away. I mean, these are real concerns. We've obviously seen many occasions where celebrities, unfortunately, have been stalked like this. Um, you know, the most prominent example, unfortunately, of all time is John Lennon, right, who in the same neighborhood almost was killed by a stalker outside his his apartment. Um, we had Rebecca Schaefer, right, most prominently. She was an actress back in the 80s on, on my my sister Sam, was and, and um, a crazed fan showed up at her doorstep and uh, shot her to death. Uh, we know that Jodie Foster was the uh, victim of stalking by uh, Ronald Reagan's would-be uh, assassin. So, these are real problems. I mean, uh, you know, she is, as you mentioned, the most really most prominent star in the world. And uh, hopefully she's got enough security to take care of this. The other issue and, you know, consistent with what Jeremy was just saying on, on deep fakes, you know, she is now threatened legal action against uh, some deep fake, deep fake uh, AI pictures that are circulating around the Internet, you know, showing her involved in sex acts and, and nudes. So, uh, you know, listen, you can say on the one hand, she's making billions of dollars and these is the, this is the price of freedom, uh, price of celebrity, I should say. But, uh, of course, we all love Taylor and hope, uh, hope for the best with these legal issues. Yeah, Rich, I mean, very well said. I don't really have anything to add other than, you know, whether they're celebrities or whether they're Supreme Court justices, um, whether they're judges here in Chicago. We've unfortunately seen what has been a significant uptick in just violence and um, people who stalk other people and really not um, even, as you said, after being in jail and being released on, you know, from jail, like they go right back to stalking again. And I think, you know, for anybody who's of any renown, I do think that they need to think very carefully about making sure that they have the right um, security measures in place to try to protect themselves and their family and their loved ones. Tina, if you're planning on seeing the material girl, just know that the material world might be a little bit later than you think. 
Yeah, Joe. So two Madonna concert goers have filed a class action lawsuit against her as well as Live Nation and Barclay Center after Madonna was two hours late to her December concert in New York. Being this late, according to the concert goers, meant that they left the venue after 1 a.m. and had limited transportation options as a result. This is not the first time that this has happened. In fact, the same thing happened at a number of other subsequent concerts on this tour, one of which happened to be on a school night and which the allegations are made it difficult for the attendees to get up early to go to work and to take care of their family responsibilities the next day. So not surprisingly, Madonna's lawyers are finding all of this just a bit incredulous, claiming that these concert goers are probably facing an uphill battle on a difficult case because of the terms they agreed to when they bought their tickets. And then there's the issue of how to quantify damages for things like someone having to wake up with less sleep. Surely the cost of filing a lawsuit is more than what is likely to be very minimal damages for losing sleep. And if we can figure out a way to get damages for losing sleep, I'm going to sign up because I'm losing sleep all the time. So as I said, this is not the first time the material girl has been accused of arriving late and she has a long history of doing it dating back years. And this is not the first time that people have sued her um, in this scenario. Some of these lawsuits have been voluntarily dismissed while others have settled for undisclosed amounts. So I don't know, Rich. I mean, this is probably the most ridiculous lawsuit we've covered, at least in this session of Legal Face Off. But I don't know. Is it though? Is it really? I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> you and I both go to concerts. You know, I think on my deathbed, I'm going to be longing for the hours and hours of my life that I waited for like any money to come on stage or something. But yeah, I Me, mean, rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace, Eddie Money. Um, yeah, you know, listen, it's it's a stupid lawsuit. On the other hand, let's try to get these people to show up on time. Why is it that if a ticket says 8 p.m., Jeremy, that really means 10 p.m.? Obviously, these venues, many of whom I, you know, I work with a lot of venues. I work with a lot of, you know, uh, artists and stuff. And I get it. You want to sell beer and you want to sell a good time and you want to make that extra money. But for Christ's sake, let's get some reality in timing here. We got we got lives to lead. We can't sit around two hours. And, you know, let's also advertise how long the opening band is going to be. So if I want to skip the opener and just watch Madonna, I could do that. Can we, can we come to that agreement as a society, Jeremy? What do you think? <laughs> Well, part of the problem is sometimes the talent. Um, I remember hearing this line from a comedian one time, and it was that he didn't enjoy um, doing dinner parties because there was always clanking of the plates and people talking and when the act should have been focused on him. And I think that um, talent on the stage, you know, singing, you know, no different than Madonna would feel the same way. They don't want people coming into the show disrupting. They want people in their seats. So when the main act comes on and, I think it's like anything else. If you if you told folks the time and and said, you know, there a person's going to go on this exact time, they'd probably wait until five minutes before to get there. So um, I think but I agree with you. It'd be nice to know up front what you're getting into. Maybe maybe they could add that on to a VIP package. <laughs> so. Yeah, sure. Mark, is this the ultimate example of one percent? problems like is the world really crying for someone who spent two thousand dollars to see madonna and had to wait a little while yeah i rich i think you forgot to say uh and you kids get off my lawn during your rant um you know if uh if you uh, were surprised that you're gonna have to wait for the main act to come on concert or you thought you were gonna 
get a full night's sleep or going to the Madonna concert, maybe you uh, maybe you shouldn't have bought the tickets in the first place. Yeah, well, I'm glad you could express yourself with that opinion. All right, Rich, let's lastly wrap up Legal Grab Bag with the fact that you can't spell mugshot without hot. That is true. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we like to cover mugshots on Legal Face. We've got a long history of covering some, you know, some of the not great mugshots. This is one, Tina, of the greatest mugshots in history, if you follow the uh, viral sensation that is uh, Virginia, Veronica Koval. We're pulling it up here. I mean, man, I that looks like she prepared for hours uh, and got the exact great lighting, the great look, good angle. Um, you know, the lipstick is perfect. I mean, that's a that's a good looking mugshot. Now, Veronica was pulled over for doing 99 and a 55. Certainly a serious speeding violation. I mean, that's a lot. Um, she's a registered nurse. She pled guilty to the misdemeanor charge. She spent the night in jail. She's 27. She's in Virginia. And she admitted that that was uh, wrong of her. She's not someone who gets in trouble. Uh, she said she's an average person, although she has admitted, Tina, that she takes her look seriously. She said about Botox and filler girl. She said that uh, she has medical grade skincare and something called laser facials uh, and swears by her Virginia stylist or, or hairstylist. So Something's working because, again, I will submit that's one of the best mugshots we've ever seen here on Legal Face Up. Yeah, I mean, she's really pretty. I guess, you know, I would say the one thing that I found curious is why somebody who's as young as she is need, feels the need to do all that to her face. But, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> What's your advice for listeners who might um, maybe perhaps this weekend be speeding a little bit and, you know, take a mugshot? Uh, do you go with a sigh? I mean, you pick your best angle. Should you bring a makeup kit? Should you bring your own stylist? Like, what's the best way to prepare for that mugshot? Are you asking me? Oh, Jeremy, what are your thoughts? <laughs> On how to prepare for the mugshot? As someone who's very, you know, you, you dress very well, I know, and you're looking great today. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, what, what? You know, it's so funny to me because I feel like people on purpose make their mugshots to be um, – and maybe it's just because you're not prepared. <laughs> I don't know if folks are prepared for their mugshot. And I think maybe the the police sort of look to get that shot, you know. So even if you – I feel like it's kind of like the, the uh, DMV, you know, the motor vehicles, you know, different departments in the states where even though they might take three or four photos of you, you always end up with the worst one. <laughs> so I don't know if there's much preparation you can do. <laughs> Mark, she – her Instagram has been blowing up after this. Uh, perhaps this was done on purpose, or is that a theory that you would buy into to get more likes, to get more, you know, more action on social media? Perhaps we don't know. It's my uh, my twentieth wedding anniversary is next week, and I have no comment on any part of the story. <laughs> probably best, probably a good idea. All right, well, we're going to end off our grab bag segment and our legal face off segment in general with. Are around the horn. We're going to learn a little bit more about our friends here, and we're going to maybe go and talk more a little bit about Madonna. And we're going to ask all of you, no Googling, even though she hasn't had a hit in a while, tell us your favorite Madonna song of all time. We'll start with Jeremy Evans. Go ahead. Favorite Madonna song. And you can't duplicate. So if someone says one of the songs, you can't duplicate it. That's the rule here on the grab bag. Holiday. Good song. Holiday. Very good. Joe Brand, favorite Madonna song. The youngest, one of the youngest people on screen here. Not the youngest, but favorite Madonna song. Do you remember who Madonna is? Can we give you a little hint? 
Well, I, I was going to say thank you for letting me go second because the only one I know off the top of my head is the one I used for the tease in Material Girl. Uh, I do know the song Holiday. I just there's no way I could say, oh yeah, that's a Madonna song. Um, so thank you for letting me go second. Very good, Mark. Thank you for making me feel old, Joe. <laughs> Mark, you've got you've got several several selections here that are possible. Uh, I, you know, I can't abide by your rules here. Uh, I apologize, Rich. Uh, Holiday was like one of the first songs when I was a kid that I remember coming out and uh, it was fantastic. But the Material Girl video changed this young man's life. So I'm going to have to go with Material Girl. You're kicked off the show forever for violating the rule. Uh, Tina, don't don't let us down. You've got a deep cut in the Madonna uh, songography. Yeah, no, I love her. I think she's great. Um, if I were to sort of choose the time in my life, the sound, her voice, you know, because obviously her voice, she did a lot of vocal training and and I love Like a Prayer. I think that that song is great. I think she sounds fabulous. I thought the arrangement was great. I thought, I mean, the, the video was so controversial. So there were so many great things about that song. So I can't believe that's a great one. I can't believe no one picked Vogue, 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 Vogue. Don't just stand there. Get right to it. <laughs> There's nothing to it. Vogue, 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 Vogue. But actually, my, but Mark made me rethink it because as a young man myself, there was a video that was like a viral video before there was such a thing. It was called Justify My Love. Now, back mm-hmm. before the days of this, you know, free pornography that all you kids uh, I have available to you. You would watch Justify My Love. And I'm just going to say as a young man, that was an exciting video back in the days of all, you know, when you when you couldn't have all this free stuff that you have now. So Justify My Love was still an incredibly provocative video and on brand for Madonna, who really challenged everything we knew about sexuality and, and, and you know, pushing the envelope. So Justify My Love, Vogue. Lisa, Leslie, you want to jump in here? Any favorite Madonna songs? I love Express Yourself. I've been to many Madonna concerts, and that's one of my favorites, always. Absolutely. Leslie, finish us off here. Don't let us down. You're the youngest member of this team. What is your favorite Madonna song of all time? Um, The one that I know that no one said yet is Papa Don't Preach. That's a Uh, good one. I'm in Trouble Deep. Another great song. Starring the late, great, uh, what's his name? from uh, Lovano. Captain Lou Albano. No, no, yeah. but you get a Cindy Lauper. I'm talking. Yeah, that about was that was. Uh, yeah, that was from Estelle from Do the Right Thing. Yeah, he played the father. Remember the guy from uh, from the Cher Nicolas Cage movie? That was that guy's name. Moonstruck. Moonstruck. You know the guy she leaves for to go with Nicolas Cage. You know the guy I'm talking about. Famous Italian. Was Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello, the great Danny, <laughs> plays the papa that she pleads with not to preach. But he preaches anyway. But good call, Leslie. I can't wait to Google all these references. Unfortunately, we're out of time here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. A big thanks to Mark and Jeremy for joining us here on the Legal Grab Bag. Our earlier guests, Jordan Rothman, Donald Knight, and Professor Jeffrey Schwartz. As always, big thanks to our two hosts, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini, and our producers, Lisa Stiegel, Leslie Alvarez, and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please give us five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. And let's not forget the birthday boy, Joe Brand. We got to go out with a with a birthday celebration. Big shout out for our friend and moderator, maybe uh, Joe Brand. Happy birthday, Joe. Happy birthday, Joe. 
It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.